At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah, so who are we talking about today, Matt? Doing away in a vile think tank is a techno-fascist dream for our future. Self-expression is commodified, subservient behavior incentivized, and obsolescence is the overarching ideal. Like tiny invaders, hordes of June beetles, cockroaches, and lanternflies, human race, our empty vessel human exoskeletons designed to protect us from our nuked lifeless biome as our hanging on by a thread soul clings to increasingly rare organic matter that is your meat suit. Lucky for us, this nightmare cannot become reality without our consent. Here in the now, you have a voice, you have expression, use it before you lose it. Here to share her story and insights into language and the power of quantum language is Danny Katz, reporter, researcher, author, and podcaster. Here with me, Mystic Mark, on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Danny Katz. Propaganda machine is out of control. They have their hands in everything. In all the movies and all the television shows, they're changing the dictionaries at warp speed. They've been in our curriculum for decades. So it, it comes everywhere. And it's, you know, it could be something as simple as the word woke, you know? Like the word woke alleges that we're done growing. Like we've already, we're done evolving. We've already done that. We can check that off our list. So it's yet another means of keeping us stuck and stagnant. And fixity and stagnation are, you know, our weapons of hierarchy, you know? So that's just one. So they don't even have to, you know, put it in a, a Hollywood movie or put it in a, on some, you know, crappy Netflix propaganda excuse for a television show. They could just get some influencer to say it, you know, or a batch of influencers to say it on Instagram or on TikTok and just 
just kind of fold it in to the social fabric that way. It's everywhere. I teach a homeschool high school propaganda class. And the gist is to resource teens with an understanding of how the world actually works so that they're aware. So I'm always teaching them like, it's fine if you're watching Netflix, it's fine if you're watching Joe Rogan, just find the propaganda because it's always gonna be there. So make it like a Where's Waldo and you know to give them tools so that they're not taking the bait or internalizing the programming, which is always to make us hate ourselves, hate one another, feel disempowered, give our power away to an authority figure, you know, like whatever it is. But yeah, it's really unrelenting right now. Hi, I'm Danny Katz, journalist, author, quantum languaging consultant, and transformational coach. I have a podcast called Word Up with Danny Katz, where I interview high vibe visionaries, original thinkers, people with really expanded perspectives. And we share deep diving solution based conversations about all sorts of weirdness and how wonderful we can make it. I'm the author of a few books, Word Up, Little Languaging Hacks for Big Change, and Pop Propaganda, an Illustrated Guide. And I think that's a good place to start. I was also the writer of uh, Plandemic 2 Indoctrination. I, I forget to tell people that also. Oh, okay. Yeah, definitely something our audience is interested in here. And I should mention that Michael Wan introduced us. So shout out to our friend Michael Wan for making the connection. And since then, your show Word Up has become a part of All Media United, which is awesome. So thank you for being here, Danny. And given all of the things that you've researched, the, the books that you've written, I mean, you're not just taking a typical conspiracy theorist approach. It seems like you're trying to understand reality. I mean, is this a, a lifelong fascination? Have you always been interested in technology or was it, you know, only recently that you started getting into this stuff? Well, on the technology front, I think I've always been pretty resistant. I was actually kicked out of my junior high for refusing to take the computer class that they wanted me to take. And I was railing and I'm like, this is the end of humanity. This is the downfall of mankind. And then I was asked not to return to my school. But yes, I have always been a truth teller. And that's the perfect description because I know people like to kind of rip on conspiracy theorists and which I feel is so weird because we're just people who want to understand truth and are intelligent enough to put patterns together. So yes, I'm always digging deeper, 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 deeper. You know, what's the real core truth that I can figure out with my third dimensional monkey mind while I'm here? You know, how much truth can I, can I grok? And I think I, I had classmates like you back then and and I would have been a silent supporter. I might not have been brave enough to leave class with you, but I would have heard you out. And I think there's a place for that now more than ever. You know, some people might debate this, but it does seem like the technocracy has replaced the aristocracy to some degree in the sense that, you know, now humans seem to worship the digital rather than, you know, this, you know, monarchical structure or, or even in between those two periods, people seem to worship the dollar. But now it seems like people are worshiping screens and, and, and obsessed with what they can do with computers. And I'm guilty of it. I mean, here we are on a Zoom meeting recording a podcast, but 
obviously you haven't always been, we'll say, in harmonious relationship with technology. It seems like you started in a disharmonious way. So what brought you into studying like quantum languaging and, and where computers meet the mind and our reality? I mean, where did the, was it a, a paranoid fascination with technology that brought you into this? Well, to be clear, my quantum languaging studies and books and all of that are more about language, you know, just like the words that we use. They don't, I mean, yes, we, we utilize our words when we're texting and emailing and whatnot. That isn't really my focus. I also had, had yet another revolutionary moment when I was in grad school for journalism and we were all giving some sort of like project or presentation and someone gave theirs on the internet. And once again, I was like, downfall of mankind, worst thing we could possibly do. And I did my best to resist it, but as like the, the technocracy and the sham show squeeze has gotten more and more intense, like I've been kicked out of traditional journalism. I, you know, it's like all these doors closed. So it's just a matter of me pivoting so that I could do what this, what I came to this planet to do, which is, you know, to rabble rouse and share deep truths. And, you know, Michael Juan and I, we had this conversation where he, he was asking me like, well, how can you justify all the time you spend on the computer? And for me, my sovereignty is the most important thing. So I realized that coming into right relationship with technology allows me to be free, allows me to drive my own ship and not have to take some like crummy job, you know, that I don't want to take. So, but it, I still have a lot of ambivalence around it and it's still frustrating. And, you know, I spent this morning doing EFT tapping and prayer around like purifying my relationship to technology and clearing, you know, the, the, the mind control and the programming that's coming through it. And, you know, I'm doing my best to work it out. And at the same time, prepping to, you know, as, as society splits, 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 as the technocratic police state continues to attempt to impose their false authority, if it comes down to it, I'll ditch the tech. And right now, I'm just alchemizing it so that it works for me. Well, I'm, I'm glad I, I was mistaken in a way, even though I should apologize. I, I guess I was incorrect in assuming that technology was your main focus. I'm kind of realizing that s sovereignty is really the mainstay. It seems like it was motivating you back in school, too, to question the integration of technology and the way it's been integrated. And I think, unfortunately... A lot of people feel like they are, let's say, subservient or not equal to the powers that be that are creating these technologies, which has a negative psychological effect. It makes you feel like you have no control over your fate, like, oh, we're all doomed. So to hear you talking about a, a right relationship with technology it really fascinates me because I think a lot of people who aren't in this conversation just assume by typing on a keyboard and understanding how the computer works that they're in a right relationship with their computer. But unfortunately, you and I both know that that's not the case. Someone can be using the technology to its full technical specs, but you know, maybe they're being coerced or socially engineered or propagandized to participating in, in giving their data away, giving their sovereignty away even. 
So yeah, this right relationship with technology is essential. And I don't know if the Unabomber methodology is the right one at this point, because I mean, you can isolate yourself to a large extent and, and, you know, maybe create a barrier so you don't feel the direct effects of this stuff. But I think as human beings, we're meant to be social. We're meant to be a part of a community. And that's kind of maybe the catch 22 of this situation is like, hey, everybody, come be a part of the community on the Internet. Meanwhile, it's a a trap. So I would say right now, more than ever, folks like us, folks like the people listening need to get their hands in to the world of technology to have an influence on it rather than taking the Ted Kaczynski approach and, and just abandoning it altogether because then who do we leave it to we leave it to the controllers who are trying to engineer this stuff against us anyway so without me rabbling on anymore how did you first start to realize like sovereignty and technology might be you know sort of linked together in this negative way like because you know, clearly your intuition was correct like this internet stuff could be the downfall of humanity i mean i don't know if you were reading much back then about this type of stuff but it was out there people were skeptical people were paranoid were there any influences on you that that lent you to to wanting to re- learn about this more I think in those early days, it was more intuitive. I've always been, I've had such a strong will. I came in with a really strong will, very stubborn. And I just, it was just a sense. Like I know I came from the future. I didn't know that then. I was just like a little weirdo, but my gut was always telling me that something was wrong. I think my first, you know, as far as like my influences when it comes to sovereignty, it's kind of the usuals for a writer like Hunter S. Thompson. I Aaron Russo was probably my first. Like he started his own political party. Do you, he did the movie From Freedom to Fascism. He also produced Trading Places back hmm. in the day. But that was when I first started to like get a little bit more politically minded about what was going on. And then, you know, for me, it was just more when when journalism, because my background is as a journalist. And when we started to move into the tech realm and just seeing how weird it was, where like, you know, I wrote for the L.A. Weekly for nine years where like, you know, articles would just disappear from the web and like the public record was being changed. And that felt weird. And then the tracking to I'm someone who actually reads the user agreements so as the user agreements got slavier and slavier, and I was like, why are we signing on to any of this? Like, this is, this is totally nuts. And that inspired me two years ago to take all my videos off of YouTube, but kind of like, like I've, I've been starting revolutions since fourth grade. And, you know, like you said, where like you would silently be supporting me. Like, that's kind of my experience where like, no one, I'm like, come on guys. And then no one else is. <laughs> joining in with me, like for every tantrum I've thrown in line at TSA and I'm expecting everyone to jump in. So I thought like, I'll get off, let's all get off YouTube and like make a stand and no one did. And it just kind of like, it was really tough for my brand, you know, as, as great that it is that there's Rockfin and BitChute, there wasn't Rockfin then, but like BitChute and Odyssey, like they kind of suck compared to YouTube. There's really no getting around it. So I kind of just shot myself in the foot and then realized, okay, let me just find a more middle ground instead of being so extreme. 
Yeah. I right. mean, and and you did nail it that like sovereign sovereignty is my main thing as well as empowerment. And that's why, and I totally agree with you. Like while we can get on the web, while we can connect like this, I do think it's important for more and more and more of us to do it because even though we might be speaking relatively similar things, you never know whose style, whose tone, you know, the alchemy of the just right words are going to hit in the right way. And that might pop the hundredth monkey. And like, you know, like we could actually wake up out of this whole sham in an instant that it really is possible. And then I think given, you know, the past couple of years of devastating like pariahhood and losing like so many friends and colleagues so quickly, it's been really a godsend to be able to connect with people like you and people like Michael and people like, you know, my assistant who lives in Africa and is, you know, like an angel in my life. And it's so beautiful that, you know, we can just WhatsApp each other and connect and share and that, you know, we could do shows like this. So I think, you know, at this stage of Babylon's fall, let's get as much truth out there as we can and connect and weave ourselves together so that when the time comes to step away, we have a really solid foundation and a, a really solid tribe. Mm, agreed. Agreed. And and yeah, I'm again feeling a little bit like I owe you an apology because, you know, nine years at LA Weekly, that's a big deal. You know, you're clearly a, a real deal journalist. So I want to ask you a little bit about that. And, you know, obviously you've been active in activism to some extent, and that seems like what motivated you to become a journalist, waking people up, sharing the truth. Where did, you know, your first big break come? Did you have a story that you thought like, oh, this was, you know, I can't believe I, I found this, you know, because you, you start looking into things and synchronistically they, they'll show themselves to you. Was there any that are worth noting? Well, my first big break in grad school, which was like the first story I ever did, was I went I went undercover in the underground needle exchanges that were going on in MacArthur Park in Los Angeles. And my professor was she was head of ABC news at the time. And they ended up taking the story from me, which I took as a compliment. Cause I was only, you know, I was so young. So that was really validating for me, you know, as a first semester journalism student that that went so well. And then all the stories that I pitched the LA weekly were too like conspiratorial. And they thought that I was like way too much of a weirdo, but my then the editor at the time, Joe Donnelly, he was always really kind and respectful. He'd always email me back and he was like, do you read our paper? Like these are so out there weirdo. And then my big break with the weekly, which is like relatively off topic. I, so I also illustrate, but like, I have no illustration skills. So they're, they're like really spazzy stick figures. And I was going through a, like a between homes moment and I was crashing with my mom and she had a bunch of people over to watch the Academy Awards. And I had taken a baseball bat to my television years before. So it, it was no interest to me, but I was there and I was bored. So I took some, she had some like paper shopping bags, like from the grocery store. And I just ripped them up and she had a grease pencil and I just started drawing all the people at the Academy Awards. So then I just had the stack of these torn paper bags with these spazzy drawings. And I thought, you know, the weekly is just going to run the same AP pictures that every single other paper in town is going to run. 
they should really run these. So my car was in the shop. My friend drove me over there and, you know, I asked the receptionist, I'm like, can you send Joe Donnelly down? And he's like, what's going on? And he came down and I just handed him this like messy stack of torn paper and they ended up running them. And that was kind of my entry. And then they kind of, you know, they welcomed me and let me write about all like my weird kind of, at that time I wasn't doing hard news for the weekly. It was more like spirituality, entheogens, burning man, like anything kind of like weird or out there. They call me their nutter butter writer. So that was what got me in. I love that. Wow. And it all started going undercover too. Was that the only time you did undercover work or were you ever, you know, in some sticky situations from that kind of thing? I don't think anything has been sticky for me since then, because I think anything like at this point, I'm, I feel like my reputation precedes me. So people know where I'm at. You know, I, I, I was producing the news for KPFK before I was at LA Weekly. So then I was doing, I was doing hard news, but, but yeah, like nothing super under, uh, undercover edgy. I mean, I think right now what I'm doing with Santa Fe Institute, given that I live in Santa Fe might be like, kind of, you know, that, that definitely has me like, I'm not suicidal, everyone like just know, but I'm not like going into places and presenting myself as anything different for the needle exchanges. I went for like six weeks straight and just volunteered and got to know like the addicts and the people who came and it made for a really good story, but it also made me feel a little bit creepy. And it was sort of like the first time where I, I had some misgivings about being a journalist very early on, which was like, I'm not being honest and I'm kind of using people for a good story and like getting into their good graces, which is part of journalism and, and just feels a little bit creepy and weird. No. Yeah. I can understand why you'd feel that way. No one likes presenting a disingenuous, you know, character. If they do, they might need to evaluate why, but uh, yeah, I, I totally see why you would feel that way. And, and it does seem like they've glamorized that idea of, of undercover. So maybe that's why I was interested in, in going down that route. But I like this idea that you were the nutter butter <laughs> reporter for the, for the LA weekly. And that made you, you know, I mean, it's a it's a great job to have if you're interested in this stuff but when it comes to you know quantum language this is like you know maybe you can understand why i had that mistake there thinking there was more of a technological side of this but you know when people really understand the nature of our reality the nature of our consciousness i can understand why you would have the bridge from being a journalist to learning about all this stuff because journalism has a tremendous influence on our world. And that's why it's been bought out. I mean, you know, the, so the old adage is, you know, if you want to really like control the town, you own the newspaper, right? Like that's kind of the, the way this sort of business has always happened. You know, the, the prominent businessman in town sponsors the newspaper. So they don't put ads in the store or newspapers in the store, you know, stories in the newspaper that don't sell ads. Right. So you, you came across that and, and eventually made your way into this realm of, of quantum consciousness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been, I was kind of reluctant at first, but let me bookmark that because you're, you're spot on about the nature of journalism and it's being compromised. But even before, 
you know, it was bought out to the extent that it's bought out now, which is just like a complete atrocity. Dealing with people's personalities and like just the whole gatekeeper setup of it was always a source of frustration for me because it wasn't necessarily like people who were in the pockets of, you know, the globalists or the bad guys or the lizards or whatever we want to call them. It was like biases that I would come up with or ignorance or an unwillingness to, you know, avail themselves to cracks in their worldview. So that was when I was at the weekly, like I would get in fights with my editor all the time because even though I wasn't doing hard news, I would feed them, you know, what at the, you know, I've always been in the quote unquote conspiracy conversation. So I would feed them stories that they wouldn't even look into because of their own personal biases. And I was like, how can you call yourself a journalist? a journalist like you're the editor of the LA Weekly there are millions of people in this town like you have a responsibility to at least investigate what's going on and they didn't and so I've seen it time and time again that like yes there is this this like larger systemic collusion that's a problem but also just dealing with personal egos and personal biases is also an issue that I've found one and that maybe comes from the selection process. I mean, one thing I learned recently from my Skull and Bones research is that Times Magazine was started by Henry Luce, and that was, you know, a very influential magazine. I mean, it's different business, sort of, but you see this happening where certain people who are picked for, you know, maybe why, you know, because they were part of some group at whatever college they went to and, and they got in that group because of whatever family they're a part of. These are the folks that usually end up in those editing roles, it seems. So, I mean, did you think it was just personal error on their part or did they have a, a did it seem at some point maybe that they were purposefully blind to these things? When it comes to the weekly, like I've worked for different publications, right? So like I had issues at Reality Sandwich with my editors there. And there I think maybe they were hand selected as part of some like three letter agency op. At the LA Weekly, and it might just be because I have, it's so it's so ridiculous because I still have this like heart connection and this devotion and they all think I'm like an alt-right Nazi, like, you know, radicalized crazy person. So it's definitely not a two-way street. But I do think that that was just personal biases. But I also think that they're being selected because they know that they're in the box and they, they know that they're not going to go out of the box. So I don't know what the selection process is. Like I know also while I was at the weekly, they were bought out by village voice. So they weren't quite as co-opted for the bulk of the time that I was there as they were like the last year when it was horrible. But then like I had issues at reality sandwich and I wrote for them for years and when I pitched a story about in 2013 about Black Lives Matter and the languaging, right? Cause that's, that's my whole thing. It's like the energetic frequencies in the words and the metadata encoded in the words and how those words are programming us as individuals, as a collective and our whole reality construct. So, you know, when I heard about Black Lives Matter and I, you know, I, I went to a meeting in Los Angeles, I pitched Reality Sandwich on it. And they were like, mm -mm, no way. It was just like the sacred cow that I couldn't touch. And my editor at the time said, well, Danny, I'm a white man. And we got in so much trouble, you know, with your last story on gender reassignment surgery. 
I don't want to deal with that again. So at the time I chalked it up to just like personal coward. And on this end of it, like kind of the deeper I go with what I'm investigating right now, I'm like, hmm, maybe there was something more to it. I, I don't know. I don't have any evidence. Well, and that effect. yeah. And even if it wasn't on like a, you know, localized basis where they were knowingly implicit in this stuff, it's still, it feels like that's the nature of what you described there. And that really great breakdown you just gave us about the metadata, the programming, the intention, the energy signature, even of these words. And We've been conditioned through the mass media over the past 10, 15, 20. You can maybe extend it back even further. But for me, as 27, I'll stop at 10 or 20 years and and say they've been programming us to be more sensitive to the victim, to the minority. And I'm not against that at all. I'm not a bigot. I think everyone should be included. But it's always the, the exclusive, the elite who want to tell the, the lesser thans how they should treat each other, you know, rules for they and not we, right? So that's kind of the, the intention behind it, but it's odd how it works out in this way where people, yeah, maybe aren't even knowing that they're implicit in this agenda. They just go along because they say, you know, well, this is a part of the progressive idea. This is a social order of how things are going. This is the evolution of humanity, right? But I mean, the more you look at history, you see that this is not a new thing. I mean, history repeats itself. But when it comes to the the metadata, the energy of words, was Black Lives Matter? Obviously, that wasn't your first go at understanding that stuff. You were prepared at that moment in time. So when did you begin to study that stuff? When did that sort of come into your mind? Like, all right, I need to understand this in order to understand all these other things. Yeah. So I had a series of shamanic initiations. I was in a very witchy phase doing a lot of plant medicine. I had a near-death experience. I just, I kept get, getting knocked down and thrown down. And so I was in another one of those phases and I was on the couch for 28 days. The whole left side of my body was paralyzed. And I just would like spend the day on the couch and go to my bookshelf and just pick another book and read and read and read. And I found this book that I'd never seen to this day. I have no idea how it got there. It was called hidden language codes by R Neville Johnson. And it was about a man who was shot point blank in the chest six times. He died for a couple minutes. And while he was dead, he downloaded these languaging codes. And after I read the book, you know, I was still a writer for the weekly, so I still had a lot of deadlines and I was freelancing for a bunch of other publications. So I was, I was just always writing and working with words and words started to speak to me multidimensionally and started to invite me into like a different kind of relatedness with them. And at the time I was like, stop it. Like, I'm just trying to write this article. Like I don't really have time to do some big deep dive into your coding work, but I just kept getting invited in deeper and deeper. And so at the time I had this really tight knit crew of friends, I called them my 5d family. And we started playing the languaging codes amongst ourselves because we would just act as, you know, like extra ears and call each other in because we all have blind spots and just like, offer, you know, gentle, compassionate adjustments. And it was really amazing to see like what we would manifest and how quickly we would move through things. And so 
I kind of dallied in it gently, you know, like I didn't really invest or throw myself into it wholeheartedly, but people were really attracted to the work, you know, so I was invited to give talks and I was invited to teach workshops. And then I was living in a commercial refrigerator in Santa Fe. It was the middle of winter in like, I think maybe 2012. And the book literally just like dropped in, like it just dropped in in a second all the whole structure. And I kind of, you know, like I did an outline and I, I put a little bit of half-assed effort into it and just kind of, you know, put it away in a hard drive. And then a spiritual publisher approached me in 2017 and asked me if I would write the book. And I said, Oh, well, I, I actually have it. So I'm happy to, you know, put some effort into it. And then again, it was just like, it was clear that like, I'm offering something that not a lot of people are offering. I'm not the only one. Robert Tennyson Stevens teaches about this work. And, you know, there's this book by R. Neville Johnson, but I, I notice in the other people who teach about this, it's very like Bible-y and Jesus-y. And I, I have no issue with that. It's just not my paradigm. And I know that that language can turn a lot of people off. So I just saw like, okay, that people are asking for this on the regular. Let me step, you know, more and more into it. So since then I've been, you know, teaching workshops, I'm writing another book on it now. And it's, I feel, I feel like I'm a custodian of the language and that, you know, language is inviting me to sort of help it evolve. And so, yeah, it just feels like a realm of service to like, it also feels like we've outgrown our language. You know, we're dealing with a language that is infected with many, many viruses and distortions, whether that was done on purpose, whether it was always like that. I'm not sure I have my suspicions and we are clearly evolving into something new, into something more, more coherent, more unified, more abundant, you know? So, so I feel inspired to help give us a language that's going to help us create that because language is like the meta organizing structure of our entire reality. It is reality creation technology. We're taught about words as communication technology, and it is that. And it is also reality creation technology. The powers that were know that like the lizard people or, or beings or whatever they are, they know that. So I'm really excited for us to start to embrace that and to use language to empower ourselves and to claim our sovereign authority and to create a new, more wonderful earth with it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, wow. So many questions. I love that this inspired, this was inspired by sort of like, I don't know if you're familiar with Lynn McTaggart's work, but it sounds like you had like a, you know, power of eight situation going on, give or take however many people you actually had. And that's exactly what this podcasting community feels like, like a 5D family, you know, and, and it's not just wonderful guests like yourself who are kind enough to come here and tell me all their brilliant thoughts. And I just get to sort of you know, shoot questions at you, but it's the listeners, you know, I've even met some in person. They've, you know, locals have come to a, a tour I gave and yeah, it's amazing how we can create this community without borders. You know, uh, there's people in, in Norway, who listen, people in Sweden. I don't know why I'm focusing on Scandinavia. I've had people in, in Indonesia listen to the show. So all over the world, but anyways, back to, quantum consciousness and languaging 
I've been learning a lot about a character named John D, and we're told that he is a big part of creating the English language, or at least closer to the version we have now than what they had initially in England. And it certainly seems like if anyone were a sorcerer that would know that language could create tech, you know, create reality in this way, it would be John D. So, yeah, I mean, when it comes to language itself, do you think English has a certain characteristic to it that lends to this? Have you looked at English as opposed to other languages in your study of quantum languaging? I mean, are there cultures around the world who are, have a more high vibration with the way they speak to each other? Because it does, it does feel like English lends itself to like insults and swears and all these things that are really, you know, low vibration. Yeah, it's a great question. I have looked at other languages. I'm not fluent in any other language, though, you know, I can speak bits and pieces of, of French and Spanish. The biggest piece that sticks out to me is how much identification is embedded in the English language, how we're so like I am, you know, like I am a thousand twenty four years old, whereas in Spain they would say I have. 1,024 years. So if I have something, like if I have a pen, I could put it down at any moment and I'm not going to conflate it with my identity. But English is rife with identification. I am arthritic. I am manic depressive. You know, I am anxious. And we see what's going on in the like social justice movement with the identitarian, you know, distortion that's ever more fragmenting. And I think that that is directly tied in with the English language. What I'm studying right now in the book that I'm writing right now is about how like contrived hierarchy is infused into the English language. And I'm not sure how that is in other languages, but I know, you know, when I describe hierarchy, when I'm teaching workshops, I go like this with my hands a lot because that's all about hierarchy, like who's on top, who's on the bottom. And that is, that is endemic intrinsic to the hierarchical structure. Like you're never going to have this. There always has to be losers for there to be winners, which I think is something that it's definitely, you know, well past time for us to evolve out of. And that those frequencies are embedded in the English language in a massive way. The Mayan culture, as I understand it, because they disappeared in, you know, allegedly a blink of an eye, but they didn't have I am in their language. There was no no ownership, no identification with temporary states of being. As I understand it, they were just language. Everything was languaged in motion and with more space, which I think allows people to unify more. If we're constantly, constantly establishing and reestablishing our identities, you know, even like an us, them, a me, you, it's just creating this illusion of separation. And that is being emphasize over and over and over again in the English language. And you see these activist groups, which I think for the most part are well-intended. You know, I think the people involved in Black Lives Matter on the ground probably have really solid intentions. Same with people who self-identify as feminists, again, for the most part. And still the language that they're using to achieve their aims, which are very unclear because it seems like a lot of their aims are to fight against things instead of to call in an up-leveled solution. They're all using an outdated hierarchical language that will never lead to any real progress. 
And do you think that that's something that can be remedied? Because we see, you know, new thought. I mean, it's obviously difficult to think your way out of it when we're taught to think using language. I mean, I'm sure there are other ways to think. I'm sure people are born with minds where, you know, they're not geared towards the type of thinking that is centered in that language part of our brain. But it seems to have affected us over time. We see things like, you know, positive thought, law of attraction. Is this sort of a remedy to that? Or do you think that's just more adding to a problem that's there? I think... I think there are elements of law of attraction that are helpful. I think that they're like most things, like most of the psyops were caught up and they give us a little bit of truth, but not the whole picture. So I think, you know, the main thing is the fact that, you know, a lot of us are running erroneous, outdated belief systems. So if I have a belief that I'm not deserving of abundance, It doesn't matter how many affirmations I say about how abundant I am. If that underlying belief structure is not addressed and rewritten at the core and the trauma that informs that belief isn't acknowledged and integrated, then those affirmations aren't going to do anything. And that's what I see is kind of the main aim of the powers that were the matrix, the sham show is to keep us in a disempowered state. You know, it's like telling any group that they are victims, that they are less than, that they're disempowering is a, a, a real wrong use of will kind of curse. Like it's completely out of line to tell someone that they are in a lower status, you know? And so every single thing about this structure is aimed at keeping us from knowing ourselves as empowered and as sovereign. And I think it's actually very simple for us to up-level our language. It's so simple. It's like once we hone in on the distortions, you know, like you said at the beginning of the show, the powers that be, right? So every time we say the powers that be in the present moment, we are acknowledging their false power and we're casting our vote for more of their false power in the future. Because the present moment is is formed of all the words, thoughts, and deeds that came before. Anything that I say or do now is going to create the future. So when I make the super simple upgrade to the powers that were, I'm removing my consent from their false power, and I'm seeding a reality construct where they have nothing to do with it. You know, so those types of things are very, very simple. It's just a matter of educating ourselves as to what words are holding us back and disempowering us and then being mindful and diligent in in introducing the upgrades. Mm. Yeah, and I see exactly what you're saying. I've experimented with various different neuro-linguistic programming books. One that comes to mind is undoing yourself by dr chris hyatt i remember having a really visceral experience with that book i I remember chanting some of the chants in that book and and feeling a difference in the way that i saw the world another book that is really formative for me was prometheus rising i think robert anton wilson either wrote the foreword or or was associated i think he wrote it but he used timothy leary's eight circuit model of consciousness yeah. and that's kind of where i'm going with this question is like 
when we see the way people identify with language and the way you're describing, do you think this is a sort of warping that keeps us maybe in that fourth level and never getting up to the you know, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth levels of consciousness? Is that sort of what's at play here? Yes, I, I think that's exactly what play. It's, it's really synchronistic that you mentioned that because I just interviewed Antero Ali on my podcast and he's all about the eighth circuit brain. And he just asked, to, we're going to do another show next month about language and about language as an enslavement construct. So, I mean, that's really the genius of the way, you know, I call them the fucktards, you know, whoever it, it, it is who is running the sham show, like they're really smart and, and their plans are really smart. So the way it is with language is that we enslave ourselves and we continue to affirm and reaffirm the cages that we put ourselves in with our language on the regular, which is, you know, from my perspective, can be very frustrating <laughs> to, to watch and observe. And, you know, for me to continue to extricate myself out of, because I'm not separate, you know, I was indoctrinated in this same construct the way we all are. But the beauty of it is that it, we can also liberate ourselves by simply changing our language. It, it really is that powerful. Mm. And it's triple synchronistic because Entero Ali is one of the writers I was thinking of when I said that. I do have Prometheus Rising by Robert Anton Wilson, but there's a book by the gentleman you just said you did a podcast with and I think Robert Anton Wilson wrote the forward to that. And that's what I was thinking of. But that book, oh, if, if I was trying, I'm sorry to look away from you while you're talking, but I was trying to find the book on my shelf because it is, that's another one. Oh, here it is. Angel Tech. This is the book by Intero Ali. And I remember finding this book, Angel Tech, and just thinking, wow, this is amazing. And the subtitle is A Modern Shaman's Guide to Reality Selection. And I think that is just absolutely fascinating. It's at the heart of kind of what we're talking about here. And wow, that's really stellar that you, you did a show with that, with Antero Ali. Wow. I mean, I'm just, because sometimes we, we have these books on our shelves and we just assume like, oh, well, Robert Anton Wilson's dead. So this guy must, you know, but they're still out there. These people, these amazing people are out there and they need to be on podcasts. So Totally. Yeah, he's amazing. Antero's brain is just so sparkly and so next level. And thank you for bring, for finding that book and bring it to my attention so I can read it real quickly before before our next show. Yeah, we're blessed to be contemporaries with these visionary original thinkers. It's it's really amazing. And again, the beauty of tech, you know, that I, I get to connect with someone who lives in the Pacific Northwest who I've never met and have these cool conversations. Agreed. Agreed. And, and yeah, I mean, forgive me for kind of interjecting with that tangent, but we were kind of going with that somewhere, right? Before I, we brought up I love that. I'm, I'm all for tangents. I'm an Aquarius. So <laughs> okay. any tangent you want to take us on flows well for me. Right on. Well, that's good to know. I, um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm interested to learn more about, you know, your take. I know you, you weren't familiar with that book you just said, but you're familiar with the concept of reality selection and you spoke to the gentleman himself. So yeah. Wow. I mean, where, where else can we go with that? Cause the eight circle model of consciousness 
is certainly at play here. But when it comes to words and, and where I was going, maybe I shouldn't have used the word law of attraction or the phrase. I was really more thinking of NLP, right? Neuro-linguistic programming. And that's really what they're talking about in those books we mentioned is reprogramming yourself because we're constantly exposed to propaganda, coercion, suggestion, and subversion. I mean, throughout our culture. And it really feels to me like most people just take it for granted. They don't realize that the military created all these technologies. So what, what do you think they are? They're weapons. They're not, you know, the military created this communication network. And I think the internet might've gotten away from them. I, Sam Tripoli likes to say that a lot, but they certainly still have their hands in the old system of media. I mean, it does seem like movies are dying now, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on that before I keep rambling? I mean, the propaganda machine is out of control. They have their hands in everything. In all the movies and all the television shows, they're changing the dictionaries at warp speed. They've been in our curriculum for decades. So it, it comes everywhere. And it's, you know, it could be something as simple as the word woke, you know, like the word woke alleges that we're done growing. Like we've already we're done evolving. We've already done that. We can check that off our list. So it's yet another means of keeping us stuck and stagnant and fixity and stagnation are, you know, our weapons of hierarchy, you know, so that's just one. So they don't even have to, you know, put it in a, a Hollywood movie or put in it on some, you know, crappy Netflix propaganda excuse for a television show. They could just get some influencer to say it, you know, or a batch of influencers to say it on Instagram or on TikTok and just kind of fold it in to the social fabric that way. It's everywhere. Yeah. There's really, I don't want to say there's no getting away because I don't want to limit us. And, you know, I teach a homeschool high school propaganda class. And the gist is to resource teens with an understanding of how the world actually works so that they're aware. So I'm always teaching them, like, it's fine if you're watching Netflix. It's fine if you're watching Joe Rogan. Just find the propaganda because it's always going to be there. So make it like a Where's Waldo and, you know, to give them tools so that they're not taking the bait or internalizing the programming, which is always to make us hate ourselves, hate one another, feel disempowered, give our power away to an authority figure, you know, like whatever it is. But yeah, it's really unrelenting right now. Mm. Yeah. And I want to take it back to the, the question I had earlier, because, you know, maybe I have an interest in history, but I think going to the root of the situation usually f yields the best results. And like I said, the English language seems to have been crafted in a certain way. And I wonder if this is something that you think was spoiled. Maybe it, they had good intentions and it was spoiled over time. I mean, do you think that there's, you know, reason to abandon the English language and create a new one? Or do are we in a, a reformation sort of stage where we're reforming what we've been given? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think I think reinventing the wheel is energetically inefficient. And I think given that we're in like, you know, the 59th 
second of the 59th minute of the 11th hour, it's not our wisest move. I don't, I do think that English is salvageable. My gut is that it was co-opted and that the inversions were laid in by, you know, like probably the psychopathic blood cults early on, because when you look into the etymology of certain words, you could see where they were inverted. And I think that just is just for us to educate ourselves. And, you know, I consider language, the English language, like the Torah, like it's not done and no one has more rights to it than anyone else. Like we're all creating culture. And I think it's really important for us to know that we don't need like a batch of letters behind our name or, you know, some fancy position to think that we have the authority to change culture. We can all change culture and culture wants us to change it, you know, like it wants more of our influence because it's going to make it better. You know, so instead of abdicating that authority to the fucktards, let's take it upon ourselves to evolve the English language. You know, like a lot of people say understand or overstand. Like, I think that's beautiful. Personally, I don't take issue with under because I don't think that potatoes are a lesser vegetable than a snap pea. And I think it's cool that people are being creative and changing words that aren't resonating for them internally and gifting the collective lexicon other options, you know, and the more of us that do that, then the quicker we'll evolve and create a better, more fun world. Mm, Yeah. And it's varying the perspective on things because, yeah, I mean, potatoes and peas are certainly good in their own ways. And same thing as getting a view from above as below, you know, you need to see things from all angles. So yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of fun word play and word association that can happen in the podcasting community. I've seen it. I've even taken part in it. And I always feel a little guilty when I entertain those kind of things because I'm afraid that too much loose association can lead people to make connections that end up becoming harmful, you know, and, and, you know, that's not to say example of that. Well, it is nuanced and maybe I spoke so much that I can't reel back in what I said, (laughs) but I think what I'm really trying to aim in for is like, this idea, you know, and I, again, I think it's great that people are molding words to create new meanings. I've definitely used a bunch of words that probably aren't still in the dictionary. Synchromysticism is one of my favorite words. And that's not, I don't think that's really defined by any dictionary. We know. Yeah, not yet. And we, and we know that that's really how words are created in the first place. But I feel like maybe the the word etymology kind of brought it up because people sometimes they'll go back and they'll find like the etymological meaning of something all the way back, back, back and be like, see, when we're saying this, we're actually saying this. I mean, hello would be an example of that, I guess, because the root word of hello, I mean, you can say hell, right? And then what's hell, right? Hell is, we're told is this bad place. But then we go even further back and we hear some stories of Heliopolis, right? Being like a place that one culture thought was really bad because they were fighting with each other. So they called their bad place in spirit in their spiritual hierarchy, hell, like Heliopolis, which Helios, we know that means the sun. So I think that's the Greeks versus the Romans that I was just describing there. But this is in a way where we get some of these words. And I think people 
take that a little too far when they suggest that, oh, every time I say hello to my neighbor, I'm wishing them internal damnation, you know, like or eternal hellfire or something like that. You know, it's it, that maybe would be my only example I could come up with. But, you know, there is a certain psychic power to words. So we start saying this word hell over and over and over again throughout our day you could make the argument that somebody planted that seed in there to create a bunch of people who, I don't know, it believed in original sin, you know, like this is a, an idea that Protestants were fighting over with the Calvinists and all these other, you know, different Christian sects were fighting over what original sin really meant. So who knows, maybe the, there was some sort of objective to that. Yeah, I'm with you. I sometimes, I have mixed feelings about it too. Sometimes, like, as you're saying that, I wonder if hell, I don't know the etymological etymological history. I did just write it down because I'm curious to look into it, but maybe hell came after hello, you know? And this goes back to the metadata of, like, what is encoded in the words, like, it's all being transmitted. So even if it's some, you know, a definition that was used 800 years ago, that is still encoded in that word. And like you, the example that's coming to mind is I saw a a life coach offer femtorship. She didn't want it to be mentorship. And for me personally, and this could also just be like my reactive pushback against fourth wave feminism and that whole thing is like, well, men means mind, you know, like now we're going to the crazy place. And like, there's an aspect of me that does understand what she's saying, but it also, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying and I, I have ambivalence about it. Yeah. And that, that is an interesting thing to consider mentality, you know, mental men. Why did that happen? Who knows? But we could get lost in all this, but what's more important is what's effective, right? And what, what, what's our goal at the end of the day with understanding this is for me, it feels like a lot of people approach this with the aim of improving their well-being. Whereas what we're talking about in that hundredth monkey effect kind of way that you mentioned earlier is the increase in well-being for our overall collective consciousness. It's not really like this selfish thing where, oh, well, if you quantumly reprogram yourself you'll be rich in a month you know this is kind of like the oprah law of attraction thing but what we're talking about is is actually scaling up the evolution of consciousness i mean he's saying those words even have baggage that can you know become controversial even that word evolution you know but but yeah that's what it feels like is this is a necessary step you know just like words like synchromysticism are born and then get integrated and then probably bastardized and then die and then another word replaced it right i mean this maybe is the cycle of these things memetics I think so. I mean, I did hear or I read a paper about how language evolves and how there are these natural cycles where like certain words get, you know, perved to a certain extent and then we create new ones. I did have the thought and then I'll, I'll come back to what you said, but like just in the example, this was a new thought for me around the mentorship, femtorship, that like actually mentorship is more inclusive because women and men, it includes all of us. 
I just, I, I, I was like, oh wait, like that, I am included in that. I don't have a hang up on that. And I think what you said is absolutely correct. It's like, we're, it's all for the greater good. Like, and for me, you know, the word that I, that I tend to employ a lot in this is coherence. Like, is it going to make our communication and our engaging and our relatedness more coherent or more fragmented? And I see, you know, like for me, that femtorship one, like that's fragmenting, you know, like that, that's like a needle on a record thing where I'm like, ah, you know, and it didn't really flow. And it has me like going to like, oh, wait, is that non-inclusive or, you know, misogynistic? Do you know what I'm saying? Like it plants seeds that wouldn't otherwise be there. And I think that fragmentation is, is one of the social engineers biggest weapons right now, you know? So if it's like, if I'm using a word or a phrase in our conversation that interrupts the flow, right. And has us like go, and like, then I have to like kind of work to figure it out or adjust. Like for me, that's anathema to the point. Like I want to create more coherence, more harmony, more flow state. So for me, like that's what really guides when I hone in on a word or a phrase that feels distorted generally, not always, but it's fragmenting, you know, it's interrupting that flow. Right. Right. And there is a sort of alchemical way to look at this. I mean, would you agree that maybe these powers that be that I'm, you know, added more weight to earlier, do you think that they're playing a sort of necessary role in order to allow for this sort of conversation to even have a reason to be? I mean, right. There's a certain amount of resistance or friction that gives a spark to create a fire, you know, and warm people. So I think there's, you know, an argument to be made there, whether they're aware of it or not. I don't know if we could ever really determine that, but what do you think when it comes to this sort of higher order? Do you think there is a sort of yin and yang at play to this where there's always going to be the, the destructive element of language that gives forth to the creative element of language? It's interesting. And I've been having this conversation with other, you know, like expansive thinkers. I have a hunch that duality is something that we're meant to evolve out of. I think it's a temporary phase or stage. And, you know, I just did an interview with this, like really tapped in spiritual healer. And she's like, it's going to take us like 7,000 years to evolve out of duality. You know, that's her perspective. I do. I think there's validity to what you're saying. And yes, it's like this squeeze and this tension and this resistance forces novelty, forces evolution. You know, like we don't grow when we're comfortable, you know, like just take a hermit crab. It, it outgrows its shell and it's only when it gets so uncomfortable that it leaves it behind to find a new one. So I think for this stage of our evolutionary game, it is necessary. There's another part of me that's like probably coming from my ego and my judgment and my opinions where I think they're a little out of control. <laughs> and I think it's, you know, the game is stacked in a way that's pretty, pretty screwed up right now. And yeah, I mean, for me personally, it's definitely lit a fire under my ass to get these books done and get this work out and to, you know, push myself a little bit harder than I might have if everything was like hunky dory. So, right. yeah, I, I think there is value to it, you know, but, you know, like the egoic part of me is like, I don't want it. 
Right, right. I hear you. I mean, that's why I'm here too. It's this feeling of something's not right and we have to do something about it. I don't want to just be a spectator to a house fire. I'd rather go in and, and help out if I can, right? I mean, maybe even if you get burnt, but that's the, the risk we take. So when it comes to our social engineers, do you think that there is a course that they're preparing us for with this sort of you know, language inversion? You think transhumanism is the goal? You think like one world society is the goal? What, what are, what's the aim with this, you know, overly symbolic triggering, you know, messaging that we're receiving in the media? Do you think there is an agenda or is it just like noise that they're using to keep us in this state of fear? I think there is an agenda. And I also think there's a lot of I think there are a lot of overlapping agendas right now. And I think that there are multiple bad guys with multiple different agendas. So I know that there's, you know, like I know Gigi Young talks about like one agenda being chaos, right? But the problem with chaos is that like, it's not nuanced. So they can only take chaos so far. I know there is a genocidal agenda. Like we can't, you know, there's a ton of evidence around that. There's also the technocratic is enslavement agenda. So there's like the slave society with those who they haven't killed off. There's another bigger agenda that I've been exploring. You know, I mentioned before we started recording that I've been really diving into Santa Fe Institute and Lifeboat Foundation and then their propaganda arm, the Consilience Project. And that seems to be a post-apocalyptic transhumanist agenda, which I think is like, a simulation. I think it's like bringing in new, new simulations. And my, my gut on that is that the people who they're kind of luring in to help them with their enslavement agenda are being promised some sort of like utopian simulation that I think will probably be another enslavement trap that they're going to get stuck in. But I know that's getting way, like way out there. I think it's some pretty dark shit (laughs) and I don't think they're going to get away with it. You know, I don't, I think the fact that they have to coerce, they have to lie, they have to censor only indicates how powerless they really are. And I think that they're, they're sloppy and they're rushed. And I do, I really do think that like the love has already won. It's just, playing it out in density is its own kind of sucky endeavor. Right. Right. And this is the, you know, third dimensional, super dimensional world that we're in. And I feel like language, music, art, these are things that help elevate the spirit. These are things that help us connect with the higher orders in life and our universe. So it makes sense on a you know strategic level why they would have control over our perspectives and want to manage them whether they can actually maintain that control i don't think you know to your point as well i don't think they can and i think they have to scare us into thinking that they're much stronger than they actually are and I know as a journalist you've been you know probably keeping your eyes on this kind of stuff for a while How much of this is just broken promises? I mean, I've heard other researchers say that he's heard about Neuralink for 50 years and they've never done anything with it. It's just 
a sham to, to him. That's his opinion, you know, but what, what are your thoughts? It's hard to say because I think there's as many psyops running in the truth community as there are in the, you know, mind controlled mainstream media community. So, and I do tend towards the like maniacally optimistic and idealistic. So it's hard to say, I think they do have tech that, and I think they've had tech for a long time that they've been telling us they will have in terms of like life extension, in terms of their weaponry and that sort of thing. But yeah, I do. I think there are a lot of empty promises, you know, I, and I don't know, you know, because I'm still, I still have a survival instinct myself and I still have human emotions myself, but I know enough that like, when a lot of people are spreading the same amount of fear at this point, I'm like, mm, I don't know. You know, like, I don't know. I think that fear is a very caustic energy. And I think in terms of loose collection, they'll do anything possible to capture our fear. So, you know, the past couple months, I mean, I've been a prepper for years and years and years. I've been, you know, I've known about this agenda for more than 20 years. So I err on the side of just in case, but for as many videos as I've seen about like the food shortages and how crazy that's going to be, I'm like, that's generating a lot of fear and a lot of people right now, you know, and a lot of things that they've said were going to go down haven't. So I don't know. I think there's a lot of, a lot of ops at play. Mm, agreed. Yeah. And, and keeps you spinning. You know, it's hard to, hard to tell. That's why I, you know, I didn't take a baseball bat to my television, but I certainly haven't brought one into this new apartment. So yeah, I'm with you there. I, there's no social engineering getting towards me and it feels bad, especially knowing Michael Wan, cause he does such great analysis of certain films that, when he does reference them, I'm like, no, I haven't seen it. And <laughs> I sound like a broken record, but yeah, there is a certain freedom that you experience when you're completely isolated and, and still in touch with the 5D folks that we resonate with. And I think, unfortunately, it may be harder and harder to find those people as time goes on because we both know this type of content gets censored and you know it's not just the controversial stuff that might even be appropriately banned i mean i'm not in favor of censorship in any sense but i i respect the right of a business to not want someone to go and speak hate speech on their platform i mean that makes some sense but still censorship has no place on a free internet and i'm wondering when it comes to censorship do you think this is just sort of a like a hurry like put a fire a blanket over the fire like way of dealing with it because they know people are catching on to this or do you think there is a sort of psychological aspect to censorship because they don't censor everybody but they do censor certain people for very particular things it seems yeah it's a great question i think again i think it's it's all of the above. You know, I'm generally going to go to all of the above. Like first and foremost, the thing about hate speech has gone completely out of control because 
people were were demonizing people who voted for Trump in 2016. And that's bigotry and that's hate speech, you know, straight up. So so it's like picking and choosing what they're going to determine is hate speech. I know for me, like I'm super targeted when it comes to censorship and I do not talk about viruses. I don't talk about election integrity. I talk about quantum languaging and empowerment and propaganda. And those are the things that get me the most censored. Or if I put out any call for clients and I say like, Hey, I have space on my coaching roster for two new clients that will be completely censored and suppressed. So I think there is a psychological element because I think, you know, for someone like me, again, it's loose collection because I get pissed. And it also keeps me from being effective with my real dharma because there's so much energy that goes into pivoting and figuring out, oh, let me set up on a new platform. Let me load 200 videos on a new platform. And, you know, it's just like a way to make us less effective because we're having to do so much damage control all the time and suppress the message. And at the same time, like that's why I think now it's so important for those of us who are in this conversation to be out there so that we can really solidify our connections now. And if ultimately we are thrown off the web, it doesn't matter because we've already created our weave. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, you know, now is the time for people to establish real connections with people. And I wonder when it comes to this type of censorship that you experience, like how much of this do you think is, is targeting? Do you think it's personal data that they're, they're gathering and realizing like, okay, divert resources to this person because they can't apply this type of censorship to everyone. Yeah. So I want to caveat this with, I get that it sounds like crazy and paranoid. And so here's my, I do think it's targeted. So here, here are the instances that I know, like I, my Tumblr blogs were pulled down while I was like, right after pandemic came out and I hadn't posted anything on there. Like there was nothing. I was in violation of no, that's the thing is I don't, the, like writing pandemic, I don't talk about those things on social media anymore at all. So that was completely unrelated to my behavior on Tumblr. So when I wrote my propaganda book in November, Mickey Willis read the book and he gave me a really kind testimonial. So my Instagram page, I handwrite quotes. So that's my handwriting, right? That's nothing that the algorithm is going to know. So it was just like, this is a great book. And here's why Danny's great, Mickey Willis. And that was flagged for COVID misinformation. So the only way that like COVID wasn't mentioned, the only way that could happen is that someone's tracking my account and I don't use hashtags, right? So I went through and I did a video on this where I literally went through my whole feed to look at, you know, like my numbers and my views and when everything plummeted. And it's only, it's my podcast that I do with Emily Moyer. They'll, they'll always suppress that one. It's anytime I talk, talk about my propaganda book, they'll suppress that. And it's anytime I have a paid offering where I could make money and do my business, which is always like quantum languaging and empowerment stuff. So I feel like there must be someone who's tasked with watching me because I'm not there's nothing I'm sharing that would trigger the algorithm. Mm. 
Well, and that, and that's why I asked not to, you know, make you sound crazy or anything, but a lot of people would, would find that very, you know, hard to, hard to believe that there could be one person tasked with, but it seems to me like at this point, it could be a technological thing, you know, where your account got flagged a while ago and now there's a network of people who just do this kind of thing for people like you, not in a, in a personal way, you know, that's where people start to be like, well, you know, maybe they're a little crazy because it seems very personal. It's like, what the hell? They know when I'm, tr um, you know, a client messaged me or I, I, I need this. And it, it is personal. It's very personal, but it almost feels like so hard to believe that they could keep that up. I, I'm trying to understand it and explain it as possibly a technology at play here or, or maybe an organized front of people. I mean, we're given this whole Russian lie that there are these teams of Russian hackers out there just spamming us with memes all day. How do we know that they're not just taking the truth and inverting it and saying Russia's responsible for it when the real truth is that, yeah, they contract those types of dorks to do that kind of stuff to people all day, all the time. And, you know, unfortunately, you're a victim of that. And we've had other guests on the show who've said exactly what you've described. Patreon's being targeted when they're talking about things that are, you know, ubiquitous. Everyone's talking about it. Why me? at some point, right? Yeah, it's it's crazy. And there are, you know, there are definitely people in my life who think I'm insane and like think I'm making it up. And, you know, like people who, who are still friends with me on Facebook, but like in real life probably don't like me anymore. Like I know they think I'm nuts and I know it sounds nuts. I mean, the bulk of my content is simply like spiritually uplifting and encouraging empowerment. And those are the pieces that are targeted. I was thrown off Facebook a few months ago. Like I was locked out of my account. And this is very frustrating to me about these big tech companies. And you mentioned at the beginning of the show how it's a technocracy instead of a monarchy, which it certainly feels like it is. There's no customer service people you could get to. So I was messaging them for weeks. Like I don't, I literally have no community guideline strikes on any of these places. Cause I'm not, that's just not what I share. Like, yeah, I do, you know, the stuff that I do with Emily, the clips that I share on social media are always clean. And then everything else is going to be, you know, on bit shoot or something else. But so I was thrown off Facebook and I, you know, I tried messaging them, couldn't get in. So I go on to Twitter and I was like, someone suggested they're like, just play their game and like play some sort of like woke discrimination card. So I felt kind of creepy about doing it, but I said, oh, I guess Zuckerberg hates Jews. Got it. And I was immediately let back into my account. <laughs> wow. Right? Yeah. Wow. I mean, and that's exactly what it seems like, you know, you fight fire with fire almost, you know, I understand why you, you wouldn't want to stoop so low, but yeah, right. that, that clearly was effective. So really makes you think what their motivations are and maybe you know to that point how much do they really care or know about you if it was that easy to flip that switch i mean it almost seems like a unorganized organized front in the sense that they're not consciously aware of everyone they're suppressing but there's clearly a system 
that is appearing to be very calculated, right? Where, you know, it's hitting you on all these fronts. So it's almost like, oh, wow, well, I must have like a double agent tracking me or something, you know, like a mirror out there. Yeah, it's really weird with my stuff because I see people who, who are putting out way more, you know, pressing edgy truths and are not being suppressed or censored anywhere near the extent that I am. And what, what complicates things further to me is that most of what I post is handwritten. So unless they taught the algorithm my handwriting, I don't even understand what would be well, triggering it unless they had someone on my case. And I think, you know, this hits at the heart of, you know, why my David Icke episode was taken off immediately when I put it on YouTube because David Icke was incredibly inspirational. To your point, your spiritual inspirational videos are getting taken off. I've had guests sort of joke around and offhandedly say coronavirus or COVID and the episode doesn't get taken off YouTube. But because right. David talked about it in a context that was empowering, I mean, now I feel like you and I are starting to get to the bottom of a little bit what is at play here is... You know, the black pill, if we can use that really awful analogy, the black pill content serves the agenda. Ultimately, even though it can offer these, you know, truths that in other set contexts would be enlightening, the way it's presented is shock and awe the same way we're hit with all this other media, whether it's television or movies or, you know, news reporting we're, we're shocked in awe. We're given bits of the truth, but we're shocked to the point where we, we can't do anything about it. We're left in a state of stupor. And, and even though the black pill conspiracy researchers might be on the money with where they're getting their facts and what they're saying, they're not leaving their audience with an empowering message because they themselves feel very afraid and lost and, and, and doomed almost, you know? So yeah, they might feel righteous about what they're doing, but I think that's why they can exist, right? Because they're ultimately playing to the hand. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And I think it also lends the appearance of a balanced conversation. And it has people thinking that there isn't censorship. It's amazing to me how many times I've had these conversations with people who are still stuck in the old narrative and they don't believe that I'm shadow banned and they don't believe that I'm censored. And I'm like, I have 8,500 followers on Instagram and I'll get like 13 views, you know, on a quantum languaging video about something empowering. And I think, I mean, for me, it speaks to the value of my work, you know, and like how powerful words really are. If this is what they don't want people to know, you know, in a certain sense, it emboldens me to keep going. It's like, good, there must be like, real value to this. Mm. It reminds me of what Sam Tripoli says all the time. He actually experimented with this because he, you know, as a comedian, obviously a very empowering person, comedy helps people, you know, deal with these hard truths in some ways. And I think he does a great job of integrating truth telling into his act, if we could even call it an act. But one of the things that he was saying was, you know, in the midst of his YouTube, Instagram censorship was, you know, I made another account 
And his idea was to talk about politics while women were twerking, right? You have these sexual <laughs> videos of women twerking. And he's Brilliant. like, he's like, you know, it'll, it'll make it past the algorithm because it's, you know, that's what everybody else is posting at this point in time. And it got flagged more than, you know, and he, the whole, for like months on tinfoil hat, they were, you know, complaining that all oh, the twerking videos got censored and and you know you can see them everywhere but because we put politics in our twerking videos so it was a whole experiment and a, a joke but i mean it really proved our case here that you know you can't you can't make the case that this is just you know within the terms of agreement because who's agreeing to this kind of thing like you know, clearly it's rules for certain people, not everybody. I mean, that's not in the terms of agreement. What are we agreeing to here? Well, that's why I would, and I'm not litigious on any level. Like, I feel like the justice system is so toxic and full of snakes and dragons and like everything evil. And, and it feels like a time suck. And at the same time, like there's no recourse. And, you know, very regularly I'll check the internet, like, are there any class action suits between the content creators against these big tech guys because they are breaking the user agreement, you know? And every time, you know, I mean, I can't say every time because it happens so often, but I have messaged Twitter and Facebook and Instagram on multiple occasions and said, I need to know what community guidelines you think I'm breaking that you continue to shadow ban me because I don't see anything in your user agreement that says that this is okay. You know, and I did it with Linktree. Linktree deleted my account during Christmas which I didn't even know about. So it was like, again, like for me, they go after like where I'm going to get income. Right. So I have an illustrated product line and I have books for sale and someone let me know, thank God. They're like, do you know that your link tree is down? And they completely deleted my account and I was on them hardcore. Like my look, I don't have a lawyer, but I lied. And I'm like, my lawyer would like to see which community guideline you are alleging that I broke and what that I posted broke it. And after a couple of weeks, they gave me my account back. I don't give them my business. I don't use it, but it's like, I would like, and I understand we're all busy, you know, creating content and doing the wonderful things that we're doing and no one wants to waste our time, but there's no recourse for these big tech guys. They just, you know, they're trampling on our rights and they're breaking their user agreements left and right. And it's annoying. Agreed. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'm citing the research of Chris Knowles here, but he was talking about how all of this big tech money is funny money. It's all drug money. It's the same money that went into propping up the Hollywood industry and it's all, you know, laundered in big tech. So, I mean, we're going to maybe make some claims here that I can't back up, but this is something he says, and I, I it makes sense to me. And I think that explains why we have this level of incompetency that's being almost promoted 
Because what are people being hired for? They're not being hired for the being the best and skilled at their job. They're being hired for their, you know, political and social beliefs. That's why they're getting into these big tech positions. You know, everybody is trying to sort of have the, you know, the right appearance so they can have the right social credit. It's not about whether or not you're, you know, good at your job or or able to effectively execute the the task at hand. It's it's about well, does this person see the same progressive ideals that I do? You know, and and none of them are original in the sense that they didn't like wake up yesterday and write poetry about how they felt and you know came to this wise conclusion that oh there's seven thousand genders and this is why no they're just regurgitating what the last person that got them all adrenalized said to them and and now they're like well i'm 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 fighting for a cause so i'm righteous here and i'm gonna go to whatever length necessary to make the change i wish to see in the world which is a great phrase i don't mean to use that mahatma gandhi phrase in that way but you know it it, it gets weaponized a lot lately it totally gets weaponized and misused and i'm just thinking of a woman in ballet today who was wearing that shirt (laughs) oh look at that Um, another synchronicity yeah yet another one yeah i think they're targeting like the mediocre and the kind of half-witted you know i don't think they want intelligent free-thinking people in those positions to actually help us and i find it you know there are these places where we've been engineered to diverge and have different perspectives and think that we're the enemy, which is, you know, divide and rule 101. But when it comes to these companies like Facebook and Twitter that have, you know, a large swath of the global population as customers and they don't have a customer service department, like, why is that not eyebrow raising for people who want to wear masks and, you know, have a Ukrainian flag as their profile picture. Like, how is their brain not tapping into the fact that that's a little bit weird, that you cannot get an actual human being on the phone? Mm. Sounds you know, a like lot that like, business uh, model is not okay. Sounds a lot like the U.S. military. I don't know if any of the victims of drone strikes ever got to call the manufacturer and complain, you know. But, yeah, I mean, it certainly feels like the big tech is is really just a a vessel, a vestigial entity that's being propped up by, you know, the military and and maybe not even our own military in some sense, because it does feel like China and other countries are heavily involved in a lot of this technology. Yeah, it's probably like China, Mossad, sprinkling of CIA, you know, DARPA's running their like gross mind control frequencies through it. I think it is absolutely military. It is interesting to hear your syncretistic sort of the web you just cast there because I'm with you. I mean, I think that's really how this works. And given what you're looking into with language and consciousness, do you think that these people are possessed? You know, we hear we hear a lot about like egregores and these entities even the names of the days of the week are named after deities. I mean, Saturn Day. Thursday, that's Mars, uh, or mm-hmm. Tuesday, and Thursday, that's Thor, right? So we have these deities in the names of our, our week, and I'm wondering, you think that there's a sort of higher entity or lower even entity at work with some of this stuff? Do you think these people are in cahoots with something demonic or otherworldly? 
I do. I do. I think a lot of the people who are in cahoots don't know. Right. And I think a lot of the people who are being used in this op don't know that they're being used in the op. But yeah, I think when we get down to the core, I don't know that these are people. I don't know that these are human beings. And, you know, I haven't delved that deep into the AI thing, but I am starting to wonder, like, is AI running this whole thing? And have they been running this whole thing for way longer, you know, than than I had yet to imagine. But yeah, I think there's a lot of like extra planetary influence happening. Yeah, yeah, no, I, certainly something we talk a lot about on this show. I've had guests from the 20 and back program, if you're knowledgeable about the whole secret space program stuff. Oh, and a little bit. Yeah, yeah. We've, had, we've had all sorts of strange accounts on this show, but it is the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy show. So we try to bring it back to the family level, the family unit, and, and, and even maybe discuss solutions as well. But I, you know, I think I can safely say your family probably thinks you're crazy to some degree. I don't know. I feel like you answered that question already a bunch, but correct me if I'm wrong. Does your family think you're crazy? Oh, for sure. (laughs) Well, welcome. You're, you're well, welcome here for sure. Because yeah, I, ever since I've had an original thought, I've had a whole family of doubters. So it, it is, you know, it, awesome again to be a part of this 5D community. And not that this is some sort of echo chamber, but people are so biased that they can't even entertain an idea that opposes something that they, you know, like to believe for a certain amount of time. You know, people get so attached to these ideas. And given that you study, language what do you think that is do you think that goes back to that egocentric identification with words that we naturally you know then identify with our philosophy you know community political ideology all this stuff sort of gets lumped together in in the sense of who we are i think that's a really big piece of it and i think the other big piece is that indoctrinated disempowerment you know, and that, that we are indoctrinated from the get-go to reach outside of ourselves for everything so that we don't have a strong sense of self so that we don't have the will or the self-esteem or the knowingness or the confidence to decide for ourselves that we, you know, we don't have a strong enough psycho-emotional center to allow our worldviews to be threatened, you know, and to know that we're not going to crumble at the same time. And I think that's something that we see in our community of like how much work we do on ourselves to be able to take in this information, to be able to decipher for ourselves. And I think that's, you know, I don't think that's necessarily the fault of, of individuals. That type of work isn't lauded or encouraged in our society and everything is set up to make sure that we don't do that. You know, just the fact that people who are born in hospitals and like the babies are taken away from the mother instantly to be circumcised, to be tested, to be like all the things that they're they're they do. And the mother doesn't even think that she has a say in it. Like that has been indoctrinated out of us for generations where it's not even a question of like, do I want my child circumcised? Do I want to have it in a hospital? Do I want my child to have a birth certificate? These things are just like, we give our power away. You know, I, I years ago, 
when I was at the LA Weekly, I wrote a cover story about, it was about a, a threesome relationship that I was in for a while. And it was about kind of like the breakdown of relatedness and trying to figure that out. So while I was researching that, and then, you know, I ended up writing a book about it. So I've probably asked over a hundred married people why they got married. And all of the answers, aside from health insurance or green card, which personally I feel like are the most valid reasons, it was like, oh, because it was time or because I loved her because he was the one, but never have I come across anyone who came to the idea themselves that marriage was an institution that of their own volition and free will, they felt attracted to. You know, everyone just inherits it as like this thing we have to do. So I think it's that, you know, that social engineering that's been going on for centuries that has us so weak willed that most people aren't resourced to avail themselves to different worldviews. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's really insightful. And I'm so glad you drew that connection there. I think that's, yeah. I mean, so many divorces, it makes you wonder like why people even do it in the first place. You know, it didn't sound like you got many, well, because we're happy together answers either, which that's why I thought you were going with that. But yeah, as well, it's like, you know, this whole idea of marriage seems to be totally capitalistic and, and a byproduct of the fact that we no longer live in a rural agricultural situation like we did for many, many centuries before that. And, and I don't know how disconnected we are from what we did before that, at least in Western culture, we seem, you know, thousands of years separated from it. But here in the United States, I mean, only 200, 300, 400 years ago, there were communities of people who lived an entirely alternative lifestyle to what we've begun to be raised into in the West. And unfortunately, what toppled them and, and replace them. But I, I feel like in a sort of prophetic sense, and you're down there in New Mexico, so maybe you, you understand this even better than I, but I feel like in a prophetic sense, the culture of the Native Americans has to emerge and integrate with what has been overlaid on top of it, almost in a karmic sense. And, and there are prophecies, by certain native elders that talk about this sort of process. But I wonder, you know, how much of, because you mentioned the Mayan culture earlier, how much of, do you, of that like sort of interplay is at work here, you know, with, because I feel like Native Americans, you know, I can't speak for them as a white male. I feel like they're sort of getting wrapped up in this victim consciousness in a really insidious way when when they're the torchbearers of the consciousness of this land. They they are part of it so much deeper than us who have been sort of positioned here by the colonies, you know, and I think that has to be reconciled. And I think language has to be a bridge in some way, because what's happening to their languages. They're all disappearing. They've been forced to speak English in many cases and French as well and Spanish, of course. So yeah, it's, it's really, and Portuguese, but we don't need to keep listing. <laughs> but what do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's especially loaded here in New Mexico where we have, I think the biggest native population in the country. And, you know, when this first went down, I thought, cause I, 
I lived in New, I moved to Mexico in 2011, went back to LA in 2015. And then November, 2019, I got this intuitive hit, like get out, like just pack your car and get out. Just don't even take your things, get out. So I came back to New Mexico where I have tribe. So when all this started going down, I thought, oh, great. I'm in New Mexico where the tribes have their own law. Like we're going to skate. Like none of this is going to work here. And literally all the tribes folded and all the tribes went with it more so, you know, than, than the non-tribal people. And I think the Navajo nation, there's a little bit more awareness there that I've, I've heard, but it's loaded because like you, like there's this, you know, there's the whole like kind of woke identitarian thing where we're not supposed to speak outside of our race, gender, sexual predilection. And with the native thing, it's even bigger. That being said, like the natives were colonized and my, my intuitive sense, and I've sat in a bunch of, you know, peyote ceremonies and sweat lodges and whatnot. And whenever I have like I'm doing so much cancel clear deleting in my head because of all the disempowered language that's part of the ritual. And then I'm feeling conflicted because I don't want to be disrespectful. And at the same time, I can't unknow what I know about the effects of language. And I, you know, I, I, I found a dead Raven in my backyard, maybe about a month ago. And I called a friend of mine who's part of the Lakota nation to ask him, you know, how to handle it. And he, you know, he told me to bury it. And then we were having a catch up conversation and he was talking to me about a project and all of his ambitions for it of like, well, it could be a book and it could be this and it could be a tour. And it was very, you know, it was very big vision that I, I know that he has it in him to achieve super talented. And, and then he said later in the conversation, but I'm just, you know, a small, pathetic little man. And I'm so small and pathetic, you know, so it's not for me to want these things. And, and that's what I hear a lot coming out of, you know, that particular church. And I was like, you know, as your friend, it really hurts my heart to hear you talk about yourself this way. And he was like, well, this is part of my spiritual tradition. You know, this is how I respect my elders and my, again, this is my sense. And I don't, I mean, no disrespect, but I feel like that's a colonial infection. Like I cannot imagine such a powerful, tapped in, connected, majestic tradition needing to put themselves down to such an extent, you know, and I, and I can see it in how I'm, you know, the Pueblo situation here is not great. You know, my friend Justin grew up on a Pueblo with no running water whatsoever. So in terms of thriving, in, a, in an evolving world, I don't personally think that that kind of languaging is supportive. And my intuitive sense is, is that that's a colonial infection that was laid in and that that's not really an organic part of that tradition. Wow. You know, wow. and that's something that I would really love to help shift, but it's really edgy here, mm. you know, and it's not until I'm invited in to do that, that's not something that feels like it would be a line for me to assert, which is painful to watch in the community. Right. Yeah, no, I, I understand completely. And it's hard to have sympathy and empathy for that when the 
programming has taught us that, oh, you should be guilty and it's your fault. It's like, no, no, no. I'm empathetic and I'm sympathetic because I respect them, not because I feel like I'm a part of this situation that they're in. You know, I had no hand in that, maybe. And not even my ancestors. I've done my genealogy. They were immigrants. They were here before, they were here after that all happened. So, you know. I don't know. I'm not trying to wipe my hands clean or anything, but I definitely feel like it's, yeah, it's extremely touching and it's heart wrenching. I actually, I'm going to wipe your hands clean. You had nothing to do with that <laughs> right. whatsoever. We were not alive when that happened, Right. you know, which is why the reparations conversation is so ridiculous. And even if your ancestor had something to do with it, I still wipe your hands of it because you don't and it's so backwards facing and it's this backward facing nonsense that has us stuck in this disempowering position that we're in. We all need to like in any sort of challenging circumstance, the solution is what's the solution? Like what, how can we move forward and make this better? And this whole PSYOP has us looking backwards and self-flagellating and apologizing for things that we had nothing to do with. And it's not helping anyone. Mm, right. And I was going to say as well, I, I think a lot of that, the issues on the reservation have to do with them being still sort of controlled by the military. I forget where I was hearing this, I think Peter Shampoo, who Michael Wan introduced me to him as well. So maybe you're familiar with Peter, but Peter's work is fantastic. I recommend you look into it since you nodded your head no. But yeah, it's spelled C-H-A-M-P-O-U-X, Shampoo. And he's very, very interesting. He's, uh, you know, a ley line sleuth sort of creating these arcs out of the ley lines and showing the sacred geometry of the earth at a larger scale. And one of his missions right now is to help repatriate the bodies that were massacred and buried at Wounded Knee because, you know, there's some spiritual implications there when, you know, people are killed and their bodies aren't given proper respect, specifically in the native culture. So, yeah. And, and one of the things that he was describing in a recent conversation I heard is that the, you know, military is still very much in control of a lot of the reservations on a certain to a certain extent so you know i've even heard conspiracies that they were witnessing planes spraying things over the reservations at the uh, you know 2019 at the beginning of this thing and and yeah unfortunately they're they've been conditioned to just sort of follow the leader and and you know feel meager and it's it's awful yeah it's it's un it's not correct it's not what should be happening that's for sure I agree. I think you're spot on. I heard that as well, uh, that the spraying was seen going over the Navajo Nation. And I I met a guy here who I think he's part of the army and he he could see that I was, you know, I, I as an Aquarius, I have historically had some authority issues I and mean, it was right around the beginning of of the pandemic. And he could tell that I was a little like nervous around him. Cause I was like, is it, are we under military police? You know, like wh where are we at? And he's like, no, no, no. I just deliver food to the reservations. And I was like, the military's feeding the reservation. Like what kind of poison and nanotech mind control bullshit are you giving them? I didn't say that, but no, <laughs> first thought. yeah, me too. I mean, geez, it's, it's like, how insulting is that? That, oh, we're going to we're going to take you off your homeland, put you in this little box. And don't worry, we'll take care of you for the rest of the time. We'll we'll, we'll ship you goods. Uh, your land's not, you know, fertile at all. So we'll take care of you. We'll give you the government cheese.
Yeah. It's so disempowering. It's like this whole, it's like, again, the inversion of victim consciousness that like everyone's so helpless. We need daddy government to take care of us. Even as a woman, the whole like consent nonsense that like a man can control his alcohol intake and know when he wants to engage sexually, but a woman doesn't have that wherewithal. So we need to be asked like any woman who's signing on to that and calling themselves a feminist is caught up in this bullshit psyop. It's completely infantilizing. Mm, Yeah, no. And it, it, it definitely creates so many more problems than it solves. And it even makes you question the, motivations of these groups that claim to espouse you know the rights of groups like this it's like well how do you reconcile their situation and then say we need to go and topple over civil war statues like that's the biggest objective right now is toppling civil war statues as if anyone even cares i mean for instance christopher columbus his statue was taken out of the worcester square park in new haven connecticut and a close friend of mine, a mentor, Amos, who, who's from Arizona, he's a member of a tribe, you know, comes from a, a long line of Native Americans. And he told me like straight up, hey, Christopher Columbus, in my eyes, was not that bad guy that your storybooks tells you he was. Sorry for the motorcycle. And he told me that the word Indian actually was sort of misremembered. And the Spanish recognized that the Native Americans had a close recogni- rec- you know, a relationship with God, and they named them Indios, as in with God, not Indians, as in like you know people from India. So this is Amos's, you know, something that makes he told so me. So much sense. Right, right, right. Well, you know, we have the same thing here in Santa Fe at the plaza, like these Antifa guys were bust in and they took down this statue, the the obelisk in the plaza. And our mayor, who's not a well-liked, you know, person, told the police to stand down. But my friends who were there said that, like, of the people who took the statue down, no one recognized them. This is a small town. Like, it wasn't, they were all bust in. And so this community is Spanish and native, you know, and they have their own beefs. And across the board, they were pissed that they took that down. They're like, that's our history. Like we've worked out our own piece. And you know, that's a piece from all of our childhoods and all of our history. And these people from out of town, you know, our mayors from out of town, they're really big on like, who's, you know, not just native in terms of indigenous, but native in terms of who's from New Mexico. And our mayor's from Seattle. And, you know, these people just came into town and like defaced it. It's not a good situation. Mm, yeah, no, I, we're in, in agreement on many levels. And I'm glad we, we got to this point in the conversation because, yeah, it's something that's very little understood by the majority of people. And it's rare that I speak to somebody who is actually kind of close knit with that. I mean, not only are you a journalist, so you you keep up with what's going on in the world around you, but yeah, you're in New Mexico, which to your point is the largest, has the largest native population of any state. And, you know, a lot of those people were pushed there, you know, this trail of tears, they came from here in the East coast and, as a, like I said, someone who's interested in history, I've been trying to, you know, piece together some of the things that went on before the colonies and it's difficult. I mean, there's four years of separation, of course, but a lot of them were completely removed from their land, from where they had settled 
you know, and they had a whole story of, well, we traveled across the plains. We saw the mound builder people and we said, if we don't know them, we're going somewhere else. And so I've found some really interesting stuff. And I wonder how much more of that would be available to us if this didn't happen. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a tangent I'm willing to stay on, but I, I understand, you know, it's definitely not what you're, you're here to talk about, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. When it comes to native language, I feel like that what you described earlier about, uh, you know, not identifying with the ego and, and having a, a different relationship with motion and the land. You know, we see that not just in their words, but in their way of being and how that inspired this whole freedom that we take for granted here in America. I mean, we get this sort of fairy tale version of the the Iroquois Confederacy teaching the the colonists all these things. Well, the truth is, if the natives never taught the colonists anything, the colonists would have just died. So we owe them a huge, huge debt for even being here. And, uh, you know, to your earlier point, like we were born, I was born in 94. So we had nothing to do with that as people living in the 21st century. But it's still something that has you know, yet to be resolved, we'll say. So yeah, there, there's definitely a reason to talk about it, but it goes back to the, the, how much power are we willing to give to these problems and what's the right way to be in relationship with these things, you know, and, and language has been manipulated and distorted so much that, you know, we can't even reach a consensus on anything anymore. You know, that's, that's the real bane of uh, the, the 21st century is we're more connected and communicative than ever, but we're all, you know, speaking in different languages like the Tower of Babel. Yeah, I think it's a big piece of it, obviously, because it's my life's work. I also think, are you familiar with the Right Use of Will book series? No, but I'll take note of it. Can you explain? I, yeah. Yeah, I highly recommend it. So it's a series of channeled books, and these books are allegedly channeled from like the Most High himself. And the, the first book is all about like will. It's like correct third chakra relating. And, and the, the book just, it basically tracks like the origins of everything. And God created the mother and the father of manifestation and heart and how like their interpersonal dysfunction created all of our dysfunction. And as above, so below, like that through the, you know, eons and eons, it's so fucked up. Like we really have to get it together to heal everything. And, and the primary thing is that it's denial, you know, like we're in such denial of our shadows and we're in such denial of, you know, our self-hatred, our self-loathing, our shame, our sexual shame, like all these pieces. And until we can get really real with it and dismantle the charges and integrate that it's going to continue to be reflected in all this like violence and chaos and dysfunction. So I think that this denial is reaching a crescendo in the woke culture and in the virtue signaling. And the only reason people virtue signal is because they don't know themselves as virtuous, right? If we knew ourselves as virtuous, then we wouldn't have to demonstrate it by wearing a mask in the car or, you know, railing on about Black Lives Matter as a white girl or whatever. You know, it's just like our own doubt of our own goodness 
because we're not in right relationship with our shadows and we're not really willing to look at them. You know, like from my perspective, all the people who are railing on about anti-racism are the most racist people that I've seen. And the people who aren't don't need to talk about it and don't need to make it a thing because it's just not part of our worldview. Mm. You know, and I think that that's, you know, I think that that's what's going on across the board is that denial in terms of like, yes, the language is layered on top of it. And there are so many issues, but I, I think one of the big, like fundamental issues is our own denial of our own shadows and, you know, our unwillingness and lack of courage and metal to really look at them and integrate them. Right. And, and these people who are railing against anti-racism, I mean, they would have been the same archetype that were, you know, participating in race riots. I mean, that's the truth. I mean, this is the type of, of mind that goes into groupthink and just sort of senselessly, you know, behaves as they see. And with social media, they've taken that groupthink and, and nationalized it and even globalized it, right? Because now we're all constantly in this crowd of, of faces in our phones. You know, we can dive in and, and take part in the, you know, the superficial adulation and, and all this different, you know, really self-gratification through the whole dopamine cycle and, and, and reward system that's been engineered, of course. But you know, winding down here. I mean, what do we do about this, Danny? I mean, what, what are your first steps? Cause you're, you're working on books. You're, you're putting a podcast out. Does it come out weekly, monthly? Like, you know, this is clearly how you're, you're taking on this problem, but what do you suggest others do who, who might not be as able as you are? Yeah. Thanks for asking. My podcast does come out weekly and sometimes I throw in like this week, there are going to be three this week. So there's at least one a week. And sometimes there are extras thrown in. I feel like, I mean, of course, you know, read, read my books, do my workshops, you know, familiarize yourself with the ways that we are sabotaging ourselves with our languaging habits, with our unconscious languaging habits. And let's clue in to how our language is programming us, is programming our collective reality and be more responsible and upgrade our language. Because again, as you know, the meta programming structure, I liken it to if we, you know, spill something toxic in the ocean and every creature is affected differently. You know, the octopus, you know, feels joint pain and the angler fish is bleeding gums and, you know, the shark has IBS. You could bring in all these different specialists to treat each animal differently, or you could just purify the water, you know, and, and let homeostasis rebalance itself. So the language is the water, right? So, you know, like help me, you know, by spreading these languaging tools so that we can purify our water. And then I would say, you know, do the inner work to see where we're full of shit, where we're in denial, where we're carrying anger and hatred. You know, I saw there are these different bursts of hysteria. And like with what's just happened with Roe versus Wade, we're seeing another wave of it. And I want to be like, I've done this myself in the past where like some of us are walking around with unresolved anger and then something like this happens and it's like, 
a seemingly noble way for us to express this anger and to rail against the Republicans and the, you know, anti-life and the Supreme Court and all of this. But the reality is, is like, that's our own anger based on our own trauma and our own experience. So instead of spewing it and otherizing and dehumanizing and smearing our world with hate, I'm really encouraging all of us. And I'm in the process myself of just going inside and getting really real with our unintegrated shit and healing it so that we're not available to be controlled and to be manipulated and to give away our emotions as part of this loose collection strategy. Because once it stops working, right, we can just hold ourselves in neutral, then none of this is going to work on us. You know, it's so much easier to not take the bait. And that is an inside job. There's no easy fix. You know, it's it's painful and it takes courage. And it's really what we're being called to do. Well said. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think that right now, you know, we're being tugged and pulled in all these different directions. And really, when you eliminate the noise from your life, take a bat to your television, like the red hot chili peppers said, throw away your television. Right. And, and actually get out and live life. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with what Mike has been doing lately, but he's like, you know, living on the land veritably. I, I don't know. Known countryside. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you're familiar and, and he's into this rewilding consciousness, which I'm sure you've talked to him about. And I think that's what we need to learn how to do is, to, you know, have, again, this right relationship with technology and reestablish our connection with nature, because that's, I mean, to me, where life starts, life begins, life ends is with the, the natural world and, and knowing our place in it. And we can maybe chalk up a lot of our problems to being disconnected from it for so long in, in a, in a <laughs> global societal way. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I don't have anything to add there except, yeah, like put your feet in the grass, <laughs> get away from the screens. Well, please add, you know, again, your show where people can find it. They can listen, of course, on the same app that they're listening to this show. But your your videos are in places, right? I know you're, you've had some trouble with censorship, but where can people find those? Your podcast obviously is available. Word Up is the name of it. You can find all the links on Alt Media United. But your book, where are you planning on putting the book out? So my books are for sale on Amazon. And for people who aren't aligned with buying books from Amazon, message me privately. I'm happy to do a private sale. And I really respect people who are making that choice. The best way to find me is to go to dannycats.com. It's the umbrella you know, HQ for my podcasts, my book, it'll lead you to quantum languaging where you can learn about my coaching services, my consulting. You can find me on Instagram if, if, <laughs> if it's a good day and they're not shadow banning me. I just did a language of healing webinar a couple weeks ago, which is great. And that's available for download on my site. So yeah, dannycats.com is the easiest way to find everything I do. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. And I certainly recommend people go and check it all out. And I didn't know you had courses or coaching, but 
who knows maybe we could schedule something because i certainly could use some of that in in the podcast's repertoire you know there's a lot of skills that you need to be an effective communicator and understanding the the quality of language is is just as important as like you know being able to talk for a long amount of time i mean i do that barely so here we are wrapping up thank you so much folks for tuning in and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now All right, and that is the episode with Danny Katz, quantum linguist, here to help us understand the hidden meaning and the hidden meanings in language. Who knows? There's, who knew there was a hidden meaning as well? I didn't know that either. I just made that up off the top of my head. The truth is, folks, it's been almost a whole month since I interviewed Danny Katz, so I don't really remember much of what we talked about all i remember was that it was a fantastic conversation she has an awesome podcast called word up she's an author she's a reporter so follow up with her she's got a website www.dannycats.com the link is in the description as for mark i have been kicking ass and taking names this last week i've been sick feeling the heat of the summer pulsing through my unregulated blood temperature going from hot to cold to hot to cold and now i finally feel better i was smoking weed the whole damn time because it's anti-inflammatory so all that anti-inflammatoryness got into my bloodstream and made me feel oh so good oh so good i gotta give a big uh stinking negative shout out to the parlor pizza in stratford connecticut who food poisoned me and i had octopus squid ink coming out of my rear end for a whole week shout out to you parlor pizza i'll never eat there again anyways i'm here in the morning recording this sunday morning this episode will be out on the Patreon today because the patrons don't wait ever. Okay, you support me. You support me pay pay for things. You pay, you help me pay for things. You help me pay the rent. You help me pay uh, the Soundstripe and all of the other things I need to pay to be a podcaster. So you don't wait. Patron, you don't wait. You get the show today when I'm done editing. As soon as I'm done editing it, I put it on Patreon. Everyone else has to wait a whole damn day. That's right. You got to wait the whole day. But anyways, whether you're listening to this on the free feed or the Patreon, I appreciate you. I love you. And I want you to know that you're cherished. You truly are cherished. So come over to the Telegram. Talk in the Telegram. I gotta say about the Telegram, though. If you feel like you are getting too personal in there, you are. Uh, Try starting a blog. The Telegram is for you as a listener of this show to discuss episodes of this show. 
topics from this show. It is not a telegram for you to post pictures of your day. It's not a telegram to post pictures of your breakfast. It's not a telegram to ask people, oh, should I get a red Hyundai or should I get a blue Ford? Ooh, uh. No, start your own telegram called the I'm a huge dork and I need friends telegram. I love all of you. I love that you're all becoming friends. That's great. But it really bothers me when I look in the telegram and it's like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. It's like so irrelevant to me and the podcast that I just get sort of upset and then I ignore the telegram and then people are like hmm Mark's never even in this telegram let's just post whatever we want and then when I get back there it's even nuts it's more crazy so I'm not going to do anything about that other than just say what I just said on the telegram so if you're listening and you're in the telegram I love you all. Don't be offended. I like that there's a cool crew of people who come back to the Telegram every day, but we might need to start a separate Telegram for the core people uh, to continue their friendship because I feel like the core group of people that have become friends in this Telegram are alienating other people from joining you see the goal is to talk about the podcast because the podcast is relatable everybody who finds the telegram can relate to the fact that they probably also heard this podcast and if they didn't well then they shouldn't be in the my family thinks i'm crazy telegram chat end of story um so yeah that's my that's my complaints from being sick and in bed. <laughs> that That's it right there. So uh, big shout out to Amy Belair. She spent $100 on the Synchromistic Exploration of the Ever-Expanding Now Edition 1. Thank you so much. How did she do that? Well, every time you pick up a copy, if you haven't picked one up yet, you might notice that you can pay $8 for it. Or you can pay more than $8. It's up to you. You can pay $1,000 for it if you really felt inclined. And I would appreciate that. Trust me. If somebody were to buy the scene for $1,000, that would be amazing. You would automatically have your name in every future edition of the scene. Um, but either way, Amy, big shout out to her. She was kind enough to pay $100 for it. Big help. If you're kind enough to do the same, you know where to go. The link is in the description. Pick up a copy of the scene. Make it a nice, friendly donation so I could keep putting out new ones. And also, we want to make some physical copies too. So I'm going to need to start saving up for that. If you want to see a physical copy of the scene one day, please support us on our Kofi store with a one-time donation on Cash App, Venmo, a PayPal, and yeah, we got a got a bunch of ways you could support the show. Obviously, I spoke about the Patreon. The Rockfin has been slacking mostly because I don't really know what's going on in the crypto. Um, I've been getting money from Rockfin, so nothing seems to have changed. But 
yeah, I'm not really like super in on on crypto and my one of the only shows that talks about finances that I listen to, Cash Daddies hasn't published an episode in like three weeks. So I'm kinda lost over here. Anyways, here we are. Rocking in the free world. I'm just wondering, um, what do you guys want to see next? Who do you want to see on the show next? I want to get Benjamin Balderson back on the show. Um, well, so we want to have back on the show. I don't know. Suggest people for the show, but we're coming close. We only have less than 10 episodes left before episode 200. So if we can get 200 people signed up for the Patreon by episode 200, that would be amazing. So sign up for the Patreon right now. I know there's 200 of you out there who have not signed up yet. And I'm talking to you right now, dude. Yeah, just looked up from the steering wheel or from your phone or from the road. And you said, is Mark talking about me? If you haven't signed up for the Patreon yet. Yes, I am talking about you. And we want you to be a part of the Patreon. We want you to be a part of our cult that we're starting in the Patreon. I can't tell you anything more about it because it's a cult. And you can only know when you're in it. And you can never leave. <laughs> Anyways, my family thinks I'm crazy. That's the podcast you're listening to. And maybe I am crazy. Maybe we just need to change the title of the show to I'm crazy the podcast anyways thank you Danny Katz go follow up with Danny Katz on her website and follow up with me on Patreon Rockfin and Kofi baby peace have a great moment wherever you are in the now little extra terrestrial trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals but i confess too much off of the tongue all my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young i be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from in like a hundred years we went saw a bomb before guns check the facts check the fed check the stars stanley mines was murked for a water fuel cell car they each they own you can stick with your old ways but eat the rich you drink the motherfucking kool-aid and i can see the red on your lip stain white skin blue collar pure american made fuck it Keep your blood soaked heritage and run the soul off the moon landed narrative. Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing. My folks think I'm nuts, but never question the parenting. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kind of hazy. Good morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm un American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Think that I'm off in the deep end. Want too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for our military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beams, another 1492. And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue. And you be lit off the floor, ride and ain't got a clue. All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes. Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said. Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed. They still got bricks of cocaine to make crack. Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. 
Talking like this, got kids talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up camp. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kind of hazy. Come on, you in there, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm on American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You can tell me that the president's an alien and it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy.